the Stonewall Massacre is an imaginary narrative about what would have happened to the chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic had it occurred in a totally different political and scientific context. Charles Ortlip, the author and a pioneering chronic fatigue syndrome journalist, is famous for the expression, epidemics never have a second chance to make a first impression. In this alternate history of the Stonewall Massacre, the story begins in 1969 when the famous Stonewall riots occurred in Greenwich Village. In this disturbing tale, the riots end in the bloody destruction of the gay community. The story then leaps forward to the outbreak of chronic fatigue syndrome in the 80s. The surprising ending of the story raises provocative questions about the politics and science of chronic fatigue syndrome and its relationship to AIDS. The Stonewall Massacre is available as an audiobook on Audible or at Amazon at stonewallmassacre.com. You are about to hear a brief excerpt of the book written by Charles Ortlip and narrated by stage and film actor Ken Camlett. The restaurant wasn't completely filled with raucous laughter. It was occasionally punctuated by sniffling and outright weeping. Judy Garland had died the week before. So you could say that a part of everyone in that room had also died. Nobody seemed to be surprised that Pills and Booze had done her in. No doubt, there were more than a few in the room who thought they were on the same messy trajectory. As I walked back to our underperforming kitchen, I would hear someone say, Poor Joey! Or, Poor Liza! This, being the ironic, sarcastic village, it was not lost on the clever crowd that Judy had died on the toilet that Garland had ended up in a fifth marriage with a seedy discotheque manager reminded us all too much of the cockamamie nature of our own lives and the final relationships we feared we'd end up in. How she ended up surprised nobody in the room. We knew the terrain all too well. Some of the customers had gone to the Frank E. Campbell Funeral Home on 81st Street, a few waiting ten hours to see the glass-topped casket earlier in the day, and they were alternatively distraught and ecstatic as they dropped the names of the celebrities they'd seen uptown going into the funeral home. Show-stopping names like Ray Bolger, Comden and Green, Mickey Rooney, Patricia Kennedy, Mayor Lindsay, Otto Preminger, and the one person who took everyone's breath away. Lauren Bacall. Our oldest customer, who had been outside the actual service that very morning, said that he had been quite moved by James Mason's eulogy, which the people outside could hear over a loudspeaker. He said that he had almost fainted when he saw Liza walk in with Joey and Lorna, and that some of the mourners on the sidewalk had, at one point, begun spontaneously singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. One of the diners had a single yellow rose he was holding at the table. He said it had fallen from the top of her coffin. But I had my doubts. I remember thinking that this was going to be a day in my memory like the one Kennedy was killed. When we look back at certain events in our lives, we edit and play games with ourselves and often add ridiculous moments of personal foreboding to the time preceding them, going back in dishonest time machines to plant some ESP that was never really there. But I have to say that the hot night of June 27, 1969, there was an undercurrent of expectation in Anna's that something big was going to happen. Maybe it was a herd's sixth sense of that kind of thing, a common feeling in the room and in maybe all the village folks in general that night, maybe all over New York City, that Judy's soul 
was trapped in some gray area of love and applause between life and death. Maybe it was that our souls just couldn't let go of hers. Whatever it was, there was definitely something in the air. It was a hopeful time. Well, with the roller coaster success of the civil rights movement, the free speech movement, and the zany social development that was often referred to as the counterculture. For anyone who was homosexual, the counterculture soon became a convenient new euphemism for those who loved in the shadows. All these changes had given us a sense of perhaps misplaced optimism, or at least a respite from our chronic pessimism. In retrospect, my guardian angel must have been a nervous wreck in that bar, deathly afraid that he wasn't going to get me out of there in time, and he must have been relieved that I finally left and was several blocks away from the Stonewall Inn when it all started to happen, shortly after one. On my way down Christopher Street, I saw a couple of men in suits and a couple of burly cops in uniforms walking together up the street. Because they were all animatedly talking to each other, I assumed they were all coppers. I brushed aside my sense of foreboding and continued warily on my way. What transpired shortly afterwards became a kind of surreal, traumatic blur and was very loosely constructed from untrustworthy visual memories and things I later heard from distraught men who were either inside or outside the inn when the police arrived. An uncanny number of people subsequently also said things just didn't feel right that night before the whole thing happened. That was a brief excerpt of The Stonewall Massacre, written by Charles Ortlib and narrated by Ken Camlett. You can find the audiobook on Audible or at Amazon at stonewallmassacre.com.